So go ahead and grab your Bibles and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10 is where we'll be tonight. We're just going to look at verses 1 through 18. So um, know that. Hebrews chapter 10, uh, verse uh, 1 through 18. Hebrews chapter 1, excuse me, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1. These are the words of God. For the law, since it is only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never by the same sacrifices, which they offer continually year by year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered because the worshipers having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have taken no pleasure." Then I said, Behold, I have come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me to do your will, O God. After saying above, sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you have not desired, nor have you taken pleasure in them which are offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. By this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also testifies to us for after, saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws upon their heart, and on their mind I will write them. He then says, And their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. Let's pray. Our Father and God, we have assembled here together this evening to bring you glory because we know that if we don't do that, we'll want to keep some back for ourselves. We ask that you, Jesus, our priest king, would mature us and do it in such a way that we cannot ignore it, but must thrust ourselves upon your mercy in order to obtain it. Help us hear your word, we pray in Christ's name, I pray. Amen. Amen. So this is message number 13 in our study of Hebrews, and we now have come to chapter 10. Up until this point, um, the writer has gone on this extended eschatological, exegetical journey um, using Jeremiah 31 as his primary proof text. In that passage, the prophet Jeremiah prophesied of a time when God would renew covenant with his people But this covenant renewal would be different than what has gone before. In particular, and we noted this last time, there were going to be two main features of the new covenant. Two main features. All right, kids? I want to know if if you remember. There are two features of the new covenant that Jesus brought. 
One is the internalization of the law of God. God would put it inside of us. Two, the complete and utter forgiveness and removal of sins. Those were the two features. Now, remember that this letter, this letter of Hebrews, it was written after the time of Christ's death and resurrection and ascension, but it was written before Jerusalem was destroyed by Rome in AD 70. Now, this is no small point, and I've intentionally brought this up on repeated occasions because the context helps us understand the content of the book. We have primarily a Jewish Christian audience whose lives had been drastically changed. Um, Jesus had come. He had gathered a group of disciples and a fledgling crowd of followers. Um, He had preached about the, the kingdom of God and its impending imposition on the world. And he went toe-to-toe with both the religious leaders and Rome. So as the book of Revelation teaches us, these two enemies collaborated together to put Jesus to death. Now, for many, they had a skewed understanding of the Messiahship of Jesus. Some dared to believe that the Messiah would lead a military revolt against Rome. Now, others weren't entirely sure But what everyone agreed upon was the fact that the Messiah wasn't supposed to die. That's not what Messiahs are supposed to do. They're supposed to lead revolts and have military campaigns, but not die. Now, of course, we know that he was supposed to die. He was slain before the foundations of the world. But for the early followers of Jesus who went with him to Jerusalem and witnessed all of it, um, for them, none of it went according to plan. It was, a, it was a shock. It was a surprise. A dead Messiah is a conquered Messiah, and those two things don't add up. Now, after his death, Jesus was buried, and on the third day, what happened, kids? What happened when Jesus was buried? What happened on the third day? He was raised, right? That's what we celebrate Easter every year, right? He was raised in resurrection glory. After spending time with his disciples... And appearing to more than 500 people, Jesus ascended back to heaven to his Davidic throne in order to sit down and rule the nations as a priest king. Those are our key words tonight, our priest king. Now, what happened after this was a time of gospel proclamation and gospel progress. But part of that proclamation and part of that progress was explaining to people why Jesus why his death was so significant. Why did Jesus have to die? He didn't meet our expectations, but why, why did he have to die? Why did the Messiah go to the cross? Why was that God's plan? Well, Hebrews is that explanation. Hebrews tells us why. Now, for many of the Jewish Christians who would have received and circulated a letter, a letter like this, they knew that there was a clear and present danger in following Jesus. They knew. Um, It's not like today's gospel packaged up really nice, you know, come to our Easter service, you'll feel good about yourself. Well, you might well feel better at at a a concert of your favorite group or something. But, you know, following Jesus, that's not what that's for. There's a present danger in following Jesus because you are declaring your allegiance elsewhere. Now, like today, there are plenty of scoffers. But unlike today, however, there was a then still standing temple with a still-standing priest with 
sacrifices that were still going on, and they had grown to trust in that system. God had given the law through Moses, and part of that law was the temple ceremonies. So the question becomes, now how does all of that stuff relate to Jesus? How does the temple system, the, the priest, the, the sacrifices, how does, that, how does that all relate to Jesus? Now, given the fact that Jesus told his disciples that the temple would be destroyed within a generation, right? He told his disciples that in Matthew 24 and Luke 21 and Mark 13, the Olivet Discourse. Given the fact that he told him that, and given the fact that he had twice demonstrated that the temple was unclean and ripe for judgment, remember when he went in and tossed the tables and drove out the money changers and the house was supposed to be a house of prayer, not for this nonsense. Twice Jesus did that, the beginning of his ministry and at the end, and he brought judgment against it. Given all of that, what are you supposed to think about the temple? Put, put yourselves in their shoes. We're, we're meeting in a house, and you know Rome is out there doing their bidding against Christians, and you grew up trusting in the temple, going to temple. You, 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 know, you believed all that, but now Jesus is here. He died. He rose again. He's in heaven. How are you supposed to, what are you supposed to think about all this now? What are you supposed to think about the high priest? What are you supposed to think about the sacrificial system as a whole? That's what Hebrews is. What Hebrews does is systematically demonstrate why the once-for-all sacrifice and atonement of Christ is sufficient for salvation. And I use salvation there in the fullest sense of the word. Hebrews is the tome that shows why Christ is better than the good system given by Moses. And it also shows how the atonement of Christ sends us into the world as confident ambassadors of his kingdom. Notice the word confident. We're not him hawing ambassadors. Well, I don't know what the king thinks. I'll have to get back to you. No, we know what the king thinks. His law is fixed, and what he expects is found in his word. So we, we can speak confidently on his behalf. So Christ came to die. He came to die in renew covenant. And part of that renewal was the full sanctification of his people so that they could be empowered to go and take the land. So note that connection, because that's where the connection is in the text. He died, he came to renew covenant. Part of that covenant renewal was the full-on sanctification, the full-on cleansing of his people so that they could be empowered to take the land. So all of that is kind of prefer, you know, a preface. Let's dig into our text. And you can follow along. I'll kind of go walk it through verse by verse. We won't read all of it. We already did. But you can kind of see where the argument builds. In verses 1 through 4, the author basically continues his argument. The law, now notice this is the ceremonial law, not the entire law of God. He's clearly in context speaking of the ceremonies. The ceremonial law was a shadow of the reality of Christ. It was a shadow. It was not the reality. Um, Therefore, because it was a shadow, it could never mature, perfect, or complete the offerer because it had to be made year after year. That's verse 1. If it could get the job done, they would have ceased from doing the offering because their consciences would have been cleansed from sin. Verse 2. 
built within the framework of the sacrificial system is a reminder that sin still plagues the offerer year after year, sacrifice after, after sacrifice. The repetition itself was to be perpetuated. That's verse 3. Why? Why did Aaron, why did the Levites, why did they have to year after year after year continue to do the same thing over and over and over again? We're told. Verse 4. Why? For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. If it were possible, it would have been a one and done thing. But it wasn't. It was not possible because those, the blood of animals can't take away your sins. It can cover you for a time. And that's what the, you know, the mosaic era was and aeon was. But it can't do the job. So why is it impossible? Why is it impossible? Well, the answer is, to point out the obvious... For those of you who came back from the zoo, there's a difference between those outside the cage and those in the cage, correct? They are animals. <laughs> they are animals. They are not men. Man has culpability. Man must pay. Adam was told, you will surely die. So that's why Jesus was a man. He had to be a man in order to do this. But the thing is, as we'll see, animals didn't volunteer themselves for the task, We'll see that connection with Jesus here when he quotes Psalm 40 that was read earlier. Animals, you didn't didn't go outside and say, look, I need an animal sacrifice. And, you know, a goat walks up and says, hey, I'm it. I'll take care of it. Kids, right? I don't Goats don't talk. They make funny noises sometimes. Yeah, they'll yell, and it's really funny. It's so funny. (laughs) But they don't talk. So animals, they don't, they don't volunteer for the task. They don't volunteer for the atonement. So it couldn't be entirely efficacious because, well, they are animals. There needed to be a sufficient sacrifice, one that fit the terms of the covenant, and it needed to be done on a volunteer basis. Now let's look at our text some more. In verses 5 to 7, the writer gives us the theology behind why Christ's blood is better than animal blood. Now, that was all introduced in chapter 9. Now we see it further explained. We are told that when Jesus came into the world, Jesus came in not to do his own will, but what? His Father's will, right? That's what he says repeatedly in the Gospel of John. He did so in obedience to God. Jesus came to obey the Father first. Now, the the writer here quotes um, Psalm chapter 40, and he puts these words into Jesus' mouth, and Jesus takes them as his own words. Sacrifice and offering was not at all what God desired, but instead he wanted what? Obedience. He didn't desire sacrifice. He wanted obedience. Hosea 6, 6, 1 Samuel 15, 22, Isaiah chapter 1, and plenty of other places. You brought up Psalm 51. There's a section um, there where David, um, he says in his prayer, Uh, For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offerings. So God is not pleased with those burnt offerings. And all of those verses demonstrate that what God wants from His people, what He wants was a people with circumcised hearts who sought to do God's will. That's what He wants. So that, I don't have this necessarily in my notes, but it just popped in my mind Clearly, that's an issue in today's evangelical world. We, we measure success for the kingdom by church attendance and even baptism. And people obsess about those numbers. 
Um, I've been in those circles before where, well, if you didn't have more than 20 baptisms or at least a few more than you had the year before, clearly your church is, you know, derelict. Like, what are you supposed to do now? So we, we have the wrong scorecard, and we're, that's a problem. But ultimately, God, like, baptism is, is a great thing, and we do that, and we celebrate that. But that's not like the end game. The whole point of all of that is obedience, right, kids? Like for you, when, when your parents want you to obey them, they, they want you to do it because not only does God command it of you, but they're trying to teach you what the best way to live your life is. Because if you just start doing whatever you want, next thing you know, you're in a hospital with broken arms and legs because you thought you could do something you really couldn't. So obedience comes from the heart, and that's what God wants from you, from us adults, from kids as well. Now, God gave the sacrificial system as a means, not an ends. It was a means, not an ends. One was to obey God, utilize the system, the shadow, as a means, though. When a, when a person sacrificed an animal by rote, he wasn't actually doing anything worthwhile, Right? That's like you can stand here and you can sort of you know, sing the songs, but your heart is not even close to what we're doing here. Right? It's so easy for that to happen. Um, the same thing with the whole sacrificial system. The, the thing is, in the Old Testament, the system could only cleanse the outside of a person, not the inside. It couldn't purify the innermost parts of a man. Only the Spirit of God who circumcised a man's heart could do that. But what Jesus is saying here in verse 7, this is David writing in Psalm chapter 40. It's about Jesus. That's what the writer is saying. He came in accordance with Scripture. Notice that in verse 7. In the scroll of the book, it is written of me. He came in accordance with Scripture to do what? To do your will, God. To do God's will. Listen, outward obedience is nothing if the heart is not inwardly galvanized towards doing God's will. Okay, kids? So, like, when you're told to clean your room and, and you stomp off mad, I, I'm not cleaning my room, but then you go and clean it, are you doing that from a heart that's joyful or are you still kind of being upset? You're, you're kind of mad, aren't you? Yeah, so... And, and, and I'm not just picking on you because we adults do the same thing, right? Even us, even us parents, we sin and do the same thing. You know, we, our hearts are far from the obedience that we're supposed to have. But, but it's nothing if the heart isn't galvanized towards obedience. It's not, it's, not, um, it's, it's not healthy obedience if it's not obedience done through love, through service, and so on. Let's keep going. In verses 8 and 9, the writer draws out the conclusion we made. He says that the first, the first is done away with. The sacrifices, those are taken away in order to establish the second, the doing of God's will. The point is, the sacrificial system is done away with in Christ in order to establish an obedient people. The old way couldn't get it done. The new way, excuse me, built on Christ's sacrifice can get it done. And verse 10 drives the point home. He says, by this will, that is Christ's obedience to the will of God, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. In other words, believers in Christ are definitively sanctified because Christ did what God wanted. 
you have a status of sanctified, definitive, we call it definitive sanctification. We'll, we'll come back to this. You have that status because Jesus Christ obeyed the Father. That's the argument here. Because Jesus came to do God's will, you have sanctification. That's the transaction. Now, to drive the point home even further, the writer tells us in verse 11 that priests stand. Notice the word here in verse 11. They stand. They stand daily, ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. I don't, I don't know about you guys. I don't like... Um, you driving down the road and there's roadkill. I, I I don't like looking at that, and my wife will tend to give me a visual because she likes to have fun with it. Oh boy, did you see that deer? Its head was missing. Like, uh. so so for me, <laughs> I can't imagine being the high priest who had to take the bull, slit its throat, put blood on the offering, like sprinkle the inner. I would have passed out. I wouldn't even have taken the job. I'd have done something different. But that's, that's how it was, though. They, they stood there, they did the sacrifices day after day, and then in the Holy of Holies, year after year, the Day of Atonement, right? They did it over and over again. They stand there repeating the same work, the same thing. And now in those days, there was rarely a sit-down computer job, uh, rarely. <laughs> IBM started back in 2,000 years ago. So, so people, tend, they stood to work. Most everybody did, especially you know, out in the fields in an agrarian culture where you don't have a John Deere with you know, a 50-foot front end to take care of business. You, you, know, you have to actually physically do the work. So you, everybody stood to work, pretty much. But Christ, I want you to see this connection. Don't miss this in the text. We see here in verse 12, he offered one sacrifice, just one, And he did that for the sins of all time, from beginning to end, from Adam to the end of time, one sacrifice for all time. And according to Psalm 110.1, which has already been brought up several times, it's a favorite around these parts, Jesus sat down at the right hand of the Father. So he sat down. The priests would stand. They would do their repetitious work. Jesus did his work one time. He was able to sit down. Christ's work is infinitely better. That's the point he's making. And not only this, he sat down as high priest, not just because his work was done. That's true. You've heard that before. But he's also there because he's a king. Remember, he's a priest king. He's a priest king. Remember that? (laughs) He's there on his throne. And according to verse 13, he's there until his enemies are made a footstool for his feet. Now, Psalm 110.1, which is the most quoted passage in the Old Testament, quoted in the New, demonstrates beautifully the lordship of Christ over the earth. And notice that he's going to sit there until his enemies are defeated. Many eschatological positions require Jesus to get up and deal with his enemies. But that's not really what the Bible emphasizes. He's on his throne until all his enemies are defeated. That's what Psalm 110.1 teaches. You should also know, Paul spends 50, I think 58 verses in 1 Corinthians 15 with that as the central driving point of the resurrection. Jesus is reigning until his enemies are defeated. So Jesus will get off his, off his throne when he comes to defeat the last enemy, which is, which is death. And that happens at the resurrection. So at any rate, the point is clear. 
Hence why the Holy Spirit, in verse 15, brings testimony again. Jeremiah 31, that's, our, that's the whole past couple of chapters we've been looking at, makes it plain that the new covenant, it involves, one, the internalization of the law of God, right? It purges people's consciences, and two, forgives their sins completely and utterly. That's in verses 16 and 17. So when forgiveness is given, there is no longer any offering for sin. Verse 18. So you can see the argument. So that's the overview of the text. Let's dig in some more. One of the things that we believe and hold to dearly, something that all Christians ought to hold to dearly, but maybe some don't as much, but we believe very much in the exclusivity of the Christian gospel. It's an exclusive gospel. What this passage and others like it insist upon is the fact that the Christian gospel is exclusive. You can't Oprahify it. There's not multiple patterns and paths and we're all just grasping for God in our own way. We have an exclusive gospel. We believe in an exclusive priest king. So we accept no imitations. We reject any man-made versions of this gospel. There is only one priest king, one gospel one atonement. Now, we, we do not have multiple formulas to get to God the Father. Now, this may come across as being quite intolerable towards other viewpoints, and that's good because that's what we intend to come across as. When we affirm the gospel, we simultaneously reject other viewpoints. So don't miss that. An embrace of this priest king and his social order inherently means it inherently means that you reject any other rival social order or pretend kingdom. So in what we must not do, and, and I think you all here know this, but the larger evangelical world does not know this, what we must not do is think that we can juggle multiple viewpoints and world and life views. Right? You brought up together for the gospel. and we're, So we're trying, to, we're trying to hold on to the gospel but we'll sprinkle a little Marxism. We'll, we'll sprinkle a little bit of socialism. We'll, we'll, we'll try to juggle both. So we, we cannot and must not speak outside of, uh, out of both sides of the mouth. Now, this is why secular humanism that builds a pluralistic society cannot work. So it's crumbling all around you. And just pay attention. It's there. <laughs> it, it cannot work. It will not work. And it will just fall in the ash heap of history. And people will look back at America and say, ha, remember that time when they tried to do the pluralistic thing and like tolerate everybody? Boy, that crashed and burned, didn't it? And who will be saying that? The Christians who will be here in hundreds of years from now laughing, just like we mock Rome for their you know, insubordination towards Christ. So... We cannot hold multiple views. We can't, we can't juggle them both. So when you affirm that Christ is the priest king, you reject Karl Marx. To trust in Jesus is to reject Judaism. To embrace the reality is to reject the shadow as being altogether insufficient. So when we are out in the world contending for the faith, whether that's at a college campus or at an abortion mill, we need to know that we aren't interested in bringing the gospel to the table so that it can have a fair chance at battling you know, these other worldviews. We're not trying to give Jesus a fair shake. 
The, no, the gospel dismantles and destroys all other worldviews because they ultimately, those other worldviews, are hostile to it. Now, before I get too far ahead of myself, because that could be a whole other thing, we need to talk about a few things. When Christ consecrates his people, when he sanctifies them and sets them apart, he sets them apart in his atonement. You see, we only get complete forgiveness and remission of sins when we die with Christ. Man must die. You, if you eat of this fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. Man must die. That's what God had promised Adam. The wages of sin is death. For all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. Right? There's, now it's a doom and gloom message all of a sudden. But, so, but here's the thing. Jesus did die a death for his covenantal people. He did that. So in Christ Jesus, we die. When he's on the cross, we're on the cross. When Jesus was buried, we're buried. When Christ was raised, we are raised with him. So what belongs to him now belongs to us. That's the exchange here. So the judicial act of being declared innocent, right? This is justification by faith. The judicial act of being declared innocent and righteous through Christ is rooted in him taking on himself the death penalty that belonged to us. So know that. So that's why there's so much blood and gore all over these, these passages. We cannot, we cannot be sentenced to death for sins that Christ died for. So that's past, present, future. Any sins that you intend to commit next week are, are covered by the blood of Christ. So that doesn't mean, you know, go hog wild here. <laughs> Right, But it, it means that we can be obedient. It means we have the ability to resist sin. We have the ability to resist temptation. So when, when the Spirit of God applies the Father's forgiveness to us on behalf of Christ, the Son, those sins, they are gone. They are gone. They are completely and utterly removed, thrown into the abyss of forgetfulness. That's what the text emphasizes. So we've talked about this several times, but we're talking about the finality of Christ's atonement. The finality of his atonement is made plain. Now, I want you to look at your Bibles real quick. And kids, you should see this too, so try to listen. There are two verses here that go together, and they are beautiful because they both demonstrate a core essential doctrine. Look at verse 10. He says, By this will the will of Christ, right, obeying the Father, we have been sanctified. So that English is past tense, and that's good because in the Greek language, it's past tense as well. We have been sanctified. We have been in the past sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So you can call that definitive sanctification. Some call it positional holiness, positional sanctification. The point's there. Now look at verse 14. Because it sounds like he's saying two different things, but he's not. Verse 14. For by one offering, he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified or those who are being sanctified. So verse 10 is positional sanctification. Verse 14 is progressive sanctification. Now, you should see this text and, and come to this conclusion. There's no hope for man outside of Christ. There's no hope for man outside of Christ. 
if we will not go outside the camp with Christ, we will not have an ounce of hope. There is no hope to abolish abortion outside of the atonement of Christ. There is no hope to rid the land of all the high places, humanist education and government schools, statism and everything in between. There is no hope to topple these high places apart from Christ's substitutionary work. So sin and death can only be swallowed up in Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That is the exclusive gospel we preach, which means that assurance of pardon, <laughs> assurance of pardon should never be looked to in oneself, the church, a priest, an elder, a pastor, anyone else. It must be looked for in Christ the priest king. So don't find it anywhere else. Now, <clears throat> back to the issue of sanctification. One of the theological things that we have to get straight pertains to this issue of holiness. In the Bible, we are told and commanded several times to be holy, but we also are told several times that we are holy. So the two things, we are sinner saints, you might say. It is more than appropriate to say, like Paul, I'm the chief of sinners. But it's also more than appropriate to say, well, I'm a saint. And, and you probably shouldn't you know, say that cheeky to your buddies or your friends. Well, I'm a saint you're suddenly not one, right? Because now you've just asserted um, pride on the whole conversation. So we are objectively set apart. We are consecrated for Christ's work and purpose. But that doesn't mean we sort of loosen our pursuit of holiness, setting aside, you know, like a trophy on the shelf. We work from a position of holiness in order to be holy. We do not work for our positional holiness, now, this has been, unfortunately, been confusing for many outside the Reformed tradition because people tend to go to extremes on anything. You know, we take seriously justification by faith alone, right? And, and then we neglect our pursuit of holiness each day by running around being a bunch of antinomians. Or we neglect justification by faith and the positional holiness we have in Christ only to then go the opposite way and obsess and navel-gaze and worry our pietistic selves to the point of being completely irrelevant to the world around us. There are extremes. There, there's a reason there are ditches on both sides. So we need to be balanced. Now, regarding our text and considering how we have been sanctified, we need to keep in mind something. Remember the two features of the law, or the new covenant, right? The internalization of the law and forgiveness of sins. Remission of sin and a new heart full of the law of God goes together. We don't have time to go too far into this, but you should know that they go together. There's a reason that those two concepts are brought together in Jeremiah 31, and there's a reason the writer keeps bringing it up over and over again. When God forgives our sins... When He forgives our sins, when He judicially declares us righteous, He cleanses our hearts and minds, but He doesn't clean it up and then leave it empty. He writes on our hearts of flesh the law of God. God covers us in righteousness, yes, but He also puts it inside of us. As forgiven sinners, crowned by Christ's glory, we move from rebelling against the law of God and thus incurring its judgment to now loving the law of God and now incurring its blessing. So don't, don't miss that. As forgiven sinners, crowned by Christ's glory, we move from rebelling against the law of God and thus incurring its judgment. We move from that to now loving the law of God and incurring its blessing. 
which means that now we are equipped for the work God has, has for us. Um, you've maybe you've heard sermons in First um, Peter, right? We, he's given us everything we need pertaining to life and, and godliness or life and doctrine, right? Or, well, uh, no one presses that. Like, well, how do you know what's righteous then? How do, you, how do you know? Well, the law is in your heart. That's how you know. Now, consider the problem of, of evil, kind of an illustration here, the problem of evil. Humanists love to give their alternative endings to their prob- you know, the problem of evil. I experienced this a few days ago while we were at George Mason University. I had a young lady. We had, we had a really good time there. We had quite a crowd at one point, and there was a lot of shouting, but you know, we tried to keep calm. Uh, one young man, and, and Brother Ron and I, we were talking afterwards, God said, I'm going to pray that God gives him nightmares, so he turns to Jesus, <laughs> and uh, I, I hope that's the case, because he had a lot of anger stuff going on in his heart. But one, one lady who was there, um, uh, she, she told me that abortion was fine, and she actually argued that I should be more concerned about the children in Syria who are dying. And, and I said to her, well, if I was out here holding signs that said, pray for Syria and the children in Syria, would you be all about it? She said, absolutely, I would love that. Think about that. <laughs> this redefinition is what unregenerate people must do. They have to redefine terms because they won't submit to the law of God. Indeed, they cannot. So redefinitions, psychobabble, historical revisionists all abound in secular philosophy. All of it. Listen, the conscience cannot be healed through Marxism. Your conscience cannot be healed through means of communism. Political means like socialism, fascism, and anything in between cannot heal the conscience of man. Only the atonement of Christ can do it, which is why we must bring the gospel into conflict with these other schemes. Now, I want you to see a couple things in our passage here. We're getting, we're getting close to the end. Got about an hour left. <clears throat> we're just getting started. Christ on the throne. That's what he brings up here. Christ on the throne. What's he doing on the throne? Sitting, reigning. Okay. Christ on the throne means four very, very important things. One, he's waiting. Did you say waiting earlier? Yeah. He's waiting. Jesus is waiting there. What's he waiting for, according to Psalm 110? He's, yes. He's waiting for his enemies to be fashioned into this footstool for his feet. They're a glorified ottoman. I don't know. And so that's verses 12 and 13. The second thing, he's given us a definitive or a positional sanctification. In other words, he's consecrated us. He's set us apart as his people. That's what we talked about in verses 10 and 14. The third thing about Jesus being on his throne, his work has in fact established the new covenant. That's why he brings it up again here in verses 16 and 17. Fourth, the last thing. And that's the last verse right here in verse 18. Christ on his throne does these things. He's waiting there, right, for a footstool. Um, He's consecrated his people. His work has established the new covenant. Fourth, sin offerings have been abolished. There is no more. That's why you, (laughs) 
There were some erroneous beliefs throughout church history, but one of them that I always thought was just wild to me is when someone would starve themselves and beat themselves in order to somehow tame their, their body from sinning. A uh, complete gross mischaracterization of what Paul talks about in, in the letter of First and Second Corinthians. It's in there somewhere. I can't remember exactly now, but um, that's the Neoplatonism that we're talking about, the Greek thought. Like, we got to escape this body, so beat your body into submission none of that's helpful. <laughs> you can't offer a sin offering. You can't. None of you can say to God on Monday morning, well, I'm going to offer up something for my own forgiveness of sins. And the, Christ is the exclusive priest king, which means we have, to, we have to take that seriously. With Christ seated as king, we have to be taking very seriously his lordship. So when men cling to shadows, symbols in exchange for the reality, men completely abandon victory, they completely abandon triumph in history. When we make the mistake of of the reality for the shadow, we get those confused, we are essentially giving our enemies power. When we are distracted by the shadows, instead of obeying the reality, we further our relevancy. Look no further than the law of God. Many Christians hate the thing that God has put in their heart. Think about that. They hate the thing that God has written in their heart. It's foolishness. And so we need the law of God inscribed in our hearts because God doesn't justify an antinomian people. He doesn't declare a law-hating rebel righteous. God does not give positive sanctions to lawless people who insist on their own autonomy. He doesn't do that. And kids, let me say it even more simply. God doesn't clean you up, forgive your sins, cleanse you with his righteousness so that you could go your own way, so that you could do your own thing. He has written his will that Christ has accomplished on your heart through the means of the law of God so that you could now walk in obedience to, get to him. So children, you get to obey God, right? We get to obey him. It's not, oh, we have to, I have to obey my parents. I have to obey God. You get to obey him. Why? Because he's put his law on your hearts. The Holy Spirit has changed your heart of stone into a heart of flesh. That's, that's how this process works. He didn't give you his law on your heart so that you could get creative and make up your own. He gave it as a gift so that you could get to work for his kingdom. But we often think the opposite, that God doesn't intend for us to advance in this culture, right? We described earlier. Listen, biblical faith that is to progress biblically must be rooted in the perfect atonement of Christ. No one No one progresses in his sanctification while clinging to shadows and man-made religious rituals. Rituals are a means. Let Let me say this real quick. When we gather to pray and we sing and we study the word and we fellowship and we feast, we do so because our lives are a culmination of obedience. None of you should walk away and think, well, we've done this and my duty for Jesus is done. Now, Monday through Saturday, I'm going to do whatever I want. We gather like this as a means. It's, it serves a purpose, and we like it, and we enjoy it, but we're not just pragmatists about it either. We gather together corporately to worship God, to strengthen, to fellowship, to encourage, and so on and so forth. But our rituals, they have to be a means to obedience and action. They have to be. Listen, our text mentions <clears throat> Psalm 110 
and Christ's enemies being made a footstool. Here's the thing, and <laughs> I got into this even at GMU when you're debating back and forth with people, and it's hostile, to say the least. You sort of miss things here and there, but Christianity isn't a religion that goes in circles. This endless, meaningless existence of repetition and with stifled effects in the world. It's a historical, it's an historical religion with a beginning that's going somewhere. It's a development of history as all things are brought underneath the feet of Jesus Christ. So if we want to be serious about King Jesus, serious about who he is, serious about what he's done in his atonement, and about what he's doing right now on the throne of God, then we have to pay attention to what this text before us says. Jesus is seated. His sanctification process is going all according to plan. None of this is a setback. None of it. And, and he intends to put the world completely to rights. That's his aim. So this exclusive priest king, he has made his will our primary concern. God's enemies are to be made a footstool, and he has chosen to use his church to do the manufacturing. We're all in the carpentry business, whether we're good at it or not, and I'm terrible at it. But we are assisting God's project in making uh, all of his enemies his footstool. So Jesus didn't die so you could lay around and accomplish nothing. He died so that we could pick up a hammer and nail and get to work. Now the Lord intends very much for his glory to cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. Hebrews is all about victory. None of this, none of this is couched and put together in defeatist language. The language in this passage and others is guaranteed bought with a price language. This is the language of a king who intends for his very exclusive kingdom to become a very exclusive problem for men who refuse to bow to him. And since you've been brought into this whole plan, you've been sanctified and you are pursuing sanctification, part of that pursuit is a daily reliance on the gospel of the kingdom, yes, but it's also a daily application of the gospel of the kingdom. So for some of you, you you simply need to make your confession more palatable. Mothers, I'll talk to you for a second. Be content with sharpening your arrows. Be content with sharpening your arrows. You have rightly chosen not to have the state sharpen your arrows. But don't feel the weight of the world in doing so. Don't feel the weight of the world. Die to yourself. Do it with joy. Husbands and fathers, men, be content with the gospel to the point that you don't feel like you have to impress anyone or puff yourself up. Do the daily grind for Jesus. Work hard, innovate, create, make stuff. Labor as one who knows that his labor is not in vain. Now, this practical Christianity right here, this stuff, you know, that, that's beneath us. We have to talk about the gospel. That is the gospel. Get to work. He, he, he bought you. He's given you the tools. Do something. That's how we labor for the crown rights of King Jesus. So when we, we say we believe in an exclusive gospel, so let's act like it. Cross and Crown Church, we have, we have been given a tremendous opportunity here. Let's not squander it. Let's take what we see here, be challenged by it, but also pursue it. We, we really do believe Jesus is king. We really do believe that he is our priest. We really do believe in him being an exclusive priest king. We also really do believe that men have given themselves over, in Rushdoony's language here, to a flight from humanity. Talk to a college student today and you will see it on display. Flight from humanity, all these dualistic ideas all this complete, 
they have, they have desired to burn with autonomous lust. They have longed for their own humanist utopia. So we are not, we are not in a time of peace. We're in a time of war. So if we say we believe it, let's believe it. Let's align ourselves with the realities as we live for him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your word is perspicuous. It is clear and it is poignant. We see in places like the text we looked at this evening the superior nature of your new covenant. We see that Jesus is better, that he is our priest king, and that you have given him a position at your right hand. We also see that your enemies are to be made into a footstool. So we ask that you would embolden us to labor in your kingdom for your glory. Help us in the here and now and help our children and future generations. We pray that man's kingdoms, which are mock kingdoms of Satan, would go and that yours would come on earth as it is in heaven. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.